You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and it is going to be such a pleasure spending the next hour with you as we take a tour around the arts. Many, many years ago, I went to see the American-Danish musical humorist Victor Borger with my mother when his British tour brought him to my hometown. I was a teenager, mostly interested in Monty Python and disco music, and thus had no inkling who this legend was. I'm sure I didn't want to go, but Mum liked taking me to the theatre. It was not my father's cup of tea at all. She loved Gilbert and Sullivan operettas, theatrical farces and the big stage musicals. She saw Phantom of the Opera so many times. Anyway, I'm sure I was a begrudging teenager going along to see Victor Borger at my mother's request, but it is a night of comedy that has stayed with me for 40 years. I don't remember any specific components of his act, but what I do remember is that we laughed so hard, my mother literally fell off her chair. We were sitting in theatre seating and somehow she managed to fall out of her chair and land on the floor and never stop laughing. This week, I was saddened to read that the British variety show comedian and crooner Des O'Connor had died. He was 88, and I'm pretty sure that he was not a household name in America, and I admit I wasn't particularly a fan, but he reminded me warmly of that era when theatre, comedy and music all got wrapped up in a single variety show, and it felt like a night out. Saturday night telly that included comedian duos like Morecambe and Wise, for whom Des O'Connor was a regular stooge, and the fabulous Two Ronnies, whose hardware store sketch never stops being hilarious. Four candles. Four candles. Here you are. Four candles. No, four candles. Well, there you are, four candles. No, four candles. (laughs) Candles for forks. (laughs) Anyway, that was all apropos nothing. Just a nod to nostalgia and evenings on the sofa. Something we're all now accustomed to. But on with our show. We're going to start with theatre today, courtesy of Talking Horse Productions, then hop over to the book world with Skylock Bookshop, and end with the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Holiday Home Tour. So, are you curled up and comfortable on your sofa? Then let's head out. 
Tonight is the digital premiere of Talking Horse Productions' sixth annual Starting Gate New Play Festival. Each year, the festival features six brand new 10-minute plays by three local playwrights, many of whom debut their playwriting career at the festival. 2020 should have been the year of the woman at Talking Horse, but their fabulous lineup of productions got moved back to 2021. But they have stayed true to their Year of the Woman theme with this year's Starting Gate New Play Festival, which sought six plays by three female or female-identifying playwrights. And I am delighted that we have the founder of Speaking of the Arts and a regular guest, Monica Palmer, back on the show in her capacity as Talking Horse Productions board member, director of and actor in two of the festival's plays, along with one of the playwrights, Mel Richardson. Monica and Mel, thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you for having us. Yes, it's a pleasure to be here today. So before we get into some of the specific details of this year's plays, Monica, I know you've been involved with Talking Course for a number of years. So give us a little background on how the Starting Gate New Play Festival got started. Honestly, that is a question that I, I wish I knew the answer to. Um, so Starting Gate, this is the actually the first year that I've been involved with the festival. Russ Scott, Meg Phillips, those are your people I think that would be wonderful to ask this question to. They were integral in getting it started. I do think, though, that it just it's infused with the same spirit that we see so much with Talking Horse events and shows, and that's just giving a stage, giving a platform to something new, something out of the box, especially pieces or or works that feature marginalized actors and directors and playwrights. So it's definitely another jewel in the crown of Talking Horse. And there are many jewels in that crown. Yes. So each year, the directors set a prompt for the playwrights. And this year, the prompt was blessing slash curse. And Monica, you are directing one play and also acting in another And again, maybe this is a question that you're not 100% sure on, but can you give us a bit of an overview for the people that don't follow the festival of the process that happens from people submitting an application to getting to premiere night? What happens in between? Well, that I can answer a little bit better because I am on the board of directors. And so I got to hear the reports from Ed and the other people that were on the selection committee. So that was a really prestigious position to be in is the person who gets to or the group of people who get to read through the submissions from potential playwrights because only three are selected and so you know they're they're reading through some really great work because the the playwrights have to submit a piece that they've written that won't be used in the festival because what we promise with the starting gate festival is these are completely brand new works that were created for the festival with the dialectic you know the theme and then workshopped and so you get to be as a person who attends the workshops and then a, um, an audience member, you get to be a part of this process from the very beginning, which is a really neat part of the Starting Gate Festival. So I know that the committee had a very hard time <laughs> choosing because we had some amazing submissions this year. But Anna and uh, Mel and Lainey are just fabulous writers. They have beautiful voices in their writing that just comes through. And and they're so different. Their style of writing is so different. Their characters are beautifully different and represent so many different types of people. And I I just think people are going to love the festival. So Mel, you are one of the three playwrights, the other two, as Monica just mentioned, being Lainey Van Sant and Anna Rawls. But this is not your first go round as a playwright. But that said, your play Finders Keepers, which is in the festival, has a special story. Would you be willing to share that with us? 
Yes. So when I got accepted into the Playwriting Festival earlier this year, I was so excited because I honestly, I didn't, I didn't think I stood a chance because there's so many talented people I know that submitted. And when I did, the first person I called to tell was my dad and he was really excited about it and just so happy. And unfortunately, a couple of weeks after I found out, my dad passed away. So I really wanted to write something to sort of honor my father in a way or ha- have his memory reflected. And yet it was too close. I was too close to losing him to be able to really write anything specifically about him. So I came up with the idea of Finders Keepers, where a group of friends has lost one of their friends to cancer, and they are going through some of her things. And and through this, I was able to put in little memories of my dad and things that he would say. Um, I know that because Monica's in Finders Keepers, one of the lines he um, always says is, I have no idea. I have no idea. He would always say that. So I put that line in there. Um, I had a beloved spatula that I used to sing, use as a microphone and dance around the kitchen. I, I put that in there. So it was just a, a couple of memories that I put into this story about friendship in which, you know, really, I think was kind of a tip of the hat to my dad. You wrote in your blog that the conflict at the centre of Finders Keepers revolves around the idea of whether it is a blessing or a curse to discover you aren't actually the person you thought you were. What was the inspiration behind kind of that key point? Well, in writing this, I mean, obviously, when after my father passed away and I went out to California to go through his things, that's where I really got the idea. Eventually, everybody goes through you know, your things after you die, somebody has to go through. And so if you had these friends going through someone else's belongings, what might they find? And, and, and what would it mean to find something like a homecoming crown years later? What would that have meant? And sort of, are we defined by our things or, or not? I mean, and that's really where the idea came from. I don't want to give too much away. I don't want to spoil the, <laughs> the whole plot of Finders Keepers. But I think it's an interesting idea that maybe we can build ourselves up to be something that we think we are. And then if we find out that's not who we really are, what does that mean? So, Monica, you are in Finders Keepers and there are three characters. And I've been trying to work out just reading the play whether you are Betsy, who gave up a singing (laughs) career to become a stay-at-home mom, Rebecca, the former homecoming queen about to get divorced, or Jennifer, the motherly voice of reason. Should I... Did I guess? (laughs) I want to hear what you think. Like, I want to hear what you would cast me as if (laughs) if you were directing the play, Diana. Which would you go for? I think I'm going to have you as Jennifer, the motherly voice of reason. See, that would be a really fun role to play. But when you have a Nora Dietzel also in the Uh. cast... Who are you going to, I mean, so yeah, yeah, it's a tough one right there. So Dana Bucky is the director for this one. And so she obviously put Nora as the the motherly one. And then you've got Amanda Atkins, who is an actress I've wanted to work with forever, uh, for a really long time. And she's just so wonderful. But we're kind of the same type. Like we could play the same characters in any <laughs> show. So, so we could have either one of us been Betsy or Becca. So I think that uh, Dana, you know, wanted to give me maybe a little, and I'm, I'm speaking for Dana here. She didn't say this, but maybe she wanted to let me stretch. And so I get to be the uh, the soon-to-be-divorcee, former homecoming queen, which is 
completely atypical <laughs> for me. Yes, that was my th- that would have been my third choice. Right. So that that's me uh, in this show, and it's been you know it was it's such a great show. Mel has done such a wonderful job with these characters. You know, it's hard in a ten minute play to give people enough to really sink into a character and understand like their motivation and their the way they relate to the other people in the show you know if it's a multiple person show and so mel gave us such a beautiful foundation of these three women and how they relate to each other but also left us room to play and build with our own choices and work with dana you know our director and and to really create something really, really beautiful. So it's it's been a joy. So Mel, I know you were out of town for the rehearsals. And so you didn't see the play until the night it was filmed. What was that like? What did you think? Oh, it was just amazing. Because I had gone to see the other play I had written, The Yellow Parasol, they had filmed the first night. So that had been a really rewarding experience as well, being able to see that come to life. But I had a little bit more involvement in that one. So when I went to see the play Finders Keepers, they were so amazing. These women had created such a wonderful friendship. And it was exactly the way I had written it to the point that they had taken my words and made it their own in a way that I hadn't even foreseen could happen. And I was so I mean, overjoyed. I I literally sat in the audience listening to the words, hearing the memories of my father, and I just, tears just came down my eyes because it was so beautiful and just so wonderful. And Dana can, as a director, I've worked with her before, and she's just so amazing at what she can bring to a production. And so she had really pulled things and put things in there that I hadn't seen. And it was just, it was absolutely amazing. So I'm, I couldn't be more pleased with that. As Monica just said, I mean, there is, a, all the plays are only 10 minutes. So that puts a pretty strict limit on what you can say and what your characters can say and how they can develop. How did that 10 minute limit alter what you wanted to say with this play, Mel? Well, I'll tell you. So when we started the Starting Gate Festival, it began back in July. Uh, We had our first workshop. So when I first read my plays, they both felt, both the Yellow Parasol and Finders Keepers fell about 10 minutes. At the second workshop in September, Finders Keepers had grown to almost 15 minutes. I think it was about 14 and a half. And so I definitely had to do some cutting. They said, you know, Russ Scott, the managing director, said, you're going to have to pull this back to closer to 10. So I had to take some stuff out. So it is a really difficult parameter, I think. I think I was trying to say more than I had time for in the 10-minute time frame. But ultimately, I think that the ended up speaking what you know really about the friendship that friendship even after someone's gone they can still impact your life your friendships continue on even after we lose someone i think the workshopping process is such a valuable part of of this journey and last year i sat in on one of the workshops because they're open to the public and it's mostly the other directors that are in the festival and some of the actors and people give their comments and feedback um So usually what I found from last year was that in the first reading, the plays were too long and they got shorter by the second workshop that you're saying yours ended up adding more in. What was the feedback from the first session that made you want to expand? 
expand it for the second session? I think there were there was just some notes. There were some things that that hadn't quite come together. Um, when I in the second session, when I rewrote it, um, Monica's character, I had talked a little bit more about her divorce, and I really I didn't need that because that's a separate story. I wanted to focus on the friendship, so I think I just I needed to just tighten it up, and that's what's so great about the workshops too, is that having the actresses read it and hear their voices as they're reading your work, it really helps you to understand what's what works conversationally, what doesn't work, what lines they were tripping over that maybe I could edit to make it sound more conversational. So that's what's so helpful about having the workshops and getting the feedback from everyone. It was really great to be a part of that process. Monica, I'm guessing that directing a play as, say, a national playwright who is never going to see your interpretation of their work is one thing, but directing a play when the writer is right there must be a very different experience. What is that relationship like? Well, I I had the fear that that was going to be the case with white people when I directed J.T. Rogers' White People because, you know, his family, his parents still live in town. And so Adam had said he he might show up. And so I had that like that threat like looming (laughs) over my directing process when I directed White People for uh, Talking Horse last year. Was it last year? It feels like a million years ago. But uh, (laughs) 2020 kind of has a weird warping sense on time. So that threat looming over, you know, is different than the fact that you know that the playwright will possibly be popping into a rehearsal or, you know, sitting there while this is being performed for an audience or for filming in in the case that we ended up doing. It's like you've been entrusted someone's baby and you really don't want to handle, you know, it's that feeling of, oh gosh, you know, that awkward holding the baby, like, am I holding the baby the way the parent wants me to hold the baby? (laughs) Should I be doing the, you know, the bouncy thing, you know, that I do with my own babies? It's just, you start questioning your decisions because, you're filtering it through, am I doing this the way that the person that created this piece would want them or how they envision them to do? Because normally with a dead playwright or one that you have no chance of interacting with or probably won't even see your production, you feel a lot of freedom and a lot of liberty with how you direct and, and the choices that you make. But I, I think, you know, especially for me, who, you know, I'm a people pleaser. So I want, <laughs> I want the playwright to be just as pleased with it as the audience. And so that was definitely a consideration directing Lainey's show. But Lainey had asked me to direct this after a workshop that was not a part of the Starting Gate workshop. She had also had it read. Um, Mel and I and Lainey, uh, some of us belong to uh, a group called the Rough Riders in Jefferson City. And so we had read this at one of those meetings and I made some observations about the characters in there. And I, you know, I made some just general assumptions about the characters and the relationship. And she liked what I said about it. She felt like I understood these characters. And so that note of faith from the the playwright was like, I'm seeing this the way that she kind of sees this. And so that's why she chose me. And so that kind of helped. She trusts me. I'm going to go ahead and do this the way that my instincts tell me to. So did she sit in on the rehearsals to comment on the directing or is is it a bit like an ex-president? You're supposed to just go away and not <laughs> not get involved. She was absolutely welcome. I invited her in. She chose not to. I think it was a scheduling thing because she is also a very busy student and she's very involved in, in a lot of things. So, so I think that just scheduling reasons, she didn't come to any of the rehearsals, but she was there for the filming. And I think she was very pleased with 
the job that the actresses did. Maddie and Amanda had a beautiful chemistry that they created for two women who had never met before this process to jump into a mother-daughter relationship and to have the beautiful um, journey that they take together in the show, hashtag blessed. It's a really lovely uh, thing to, to watch that develop just over a handful of rehearsals, which is all we had for this show, but how quickly that chemistry can happen. So it was it was very magical. Mel, you have a second play in the festival called The Yellow Parasol, which I believe was inspired by the book The Golden Lane, How Missouri Women Gained the Vote and Changed History, which was written by a longtime KOPN programmer and current board member, Margot McMillan. Tell us a little bit about The Yellow Parasol. Well, because of course, this is the 100th anniversary of women gaining the right to vote, it felt important to me to write a play about that. So I knew from the get-go that I really wanted to speak to that. And I had read Margot's book about the Golden Lane, which was in St. Louis, where women stood in their white dresses with their yellow parasols as the men came out of the Democratic National Convention and they stood there in silence, so you know, showing that their voices weren't heard. It was a very powerful movement, a very powerful walkless, talkless parade, they called it. So I knew I wanted to read about that, uh, to write about that after reading Margot's book. And so interestingly enough, they had a Zoom about it this summer about the Golden Lane with the State Historical Society. And I watched it and Margot talked about the book and said, well, if you ever want to reach out and you know, here's my email. And so I did. I, I reached out and I said, hey, I'm, I'm writing this play for Talking Horse for the Starting Gate New Play Festival. And I was wondering if you would take a look at it. And she was really instrumental in giving me some ideas about it and reading it and showing me what was authentic and what wasn't. So I'm just very eternally grateful for all of her help and candor with the yellow parasol. Now you have one of the characters in that play is called Ruth and she is black and she is a a maid in a house of two of the women who went to the march. And I have to say, I would be really anxious writing a black character because I'm not black and I can never know how that feels. How did you approach that? Well, it's interesting that you say that, Diana, because after the first workshop, when the first version of The Yellow Parasol was read, that's exactly how I felt. I thought, I have no business writing about this. I clearly don't have an understanding. I should never have taken this on. Um, Because initially in my first draft of The Yellow Parasol, there were only two characters. There was the Ruth character and the Eleanor character. And racism was the antagonist without actually being in the room. Well, that didn't work. It didn't work because then I had it's I someone had to play the antagonist and I didn't want it to be Ruth. And I was trying to show that Eleanor was advocating for Ruth. So I I literally had to develop a real antagonist character, which is Agnes, and drop her into the room so that we could have that. I think this play I learned the most from. I learned that it's important to write what you know. And if you don't know, then probably steer clear from it. I'm happy with how it turned out in the end. And I think that it's, um, I'm very proud of it. And I'm proud of the actresses and my director, Mary Jo LaCourt, 
did a fantastic job, especially one of the actresses actually got COVID and had to drop out. So it was the last minute thing. Shara came in at the last minute and played Ruth. So I think that that was a very important lesson to learn. And I think that's part of the process of the workshop. That's why they want us to have these lessons to learn um, what works and what, what doesn't work when you're a playwright trying to figure out what you want to tell the world about. Monica, I know you have a million plays inside you just, you know, busting to get out. How come you haven't submitted a play or (laughs) maybe you have, I don't know. I thought about doing it this year, but then, you know, I had a lot uh, going on with when I was working with the Missouri Symphony, trying to figure out how a performing arts organization stays alive in a time of no performances. So that was taking a lot of my focus. <laughs> so, um, so you know, I didn't apply this year, but I, I definitely, you know, I, I, like I mentioned, the Rough Riders group. I'm getting more comfortable with my writing and sharing it with other people. It's something that's always been a little more uh, private for me and and just years of self-doubt and, and <laughs> wondering if anything is actually any good. And I think that writing groups and workshops, I think you mentioned this earlier when you talked about the workshopping process of, of hearing your words voiced by other people, it's so powerful. And it's taking ownership of something you created, but also allowing other people into that process. Because writing can be a very solitary and isolated thing, and it leaves a lot of room for you to doubt yourself and for those voices in your head to kind of take control and say, no, it's it's no good. It's, it's, it's very amateur. It's very whatever, you know, but the only way you get better at something is to keep doing it. <laughs> so if you keep telling yourself that it's no good and then you then you might not do it anymore. But the workshopping process or working with a writing group, it gets you stronger. It builds those muscles and it gets you to a place where you can make those voices be quiet for a little while so that you can create. And so, so maybe next year uh, to answer your question <laughs> in a really long way. Mel, is it more difficult coming up with the story and developing the plot or do you find it more difficult thinking about the dialogue on what people would say once I have my characters they pretty much speak for themselves I mean they pretty much if I have an idea about where I'm going or what I want to say like the yellow parasol for example I knew I wanted to talk about the golden lane it's based basically on these uh, Wednesday clubs that the women used to have and so The characters, when you've got the character in the story, I think the dialogue for me, it just naturally happens in a way that I can't really explain except just knowing your characters, I think is helps them along. But then it's always great to have actresses because I know Monica, when we've worked together in the past, the way she says things has really shed a light on my own writing and showing, oh, maybe I need to change it up to say it this way instead of the way I was trying to say it. So it's very interesting working in workshop capacities and listening to people read your work and what they bring to it, especially very talented actresses like Monica Palmer. (laughs) She is great. (laughs) 
Well, the Starting Gate New Play Festival has its digital premiere tonight at 7.30 and tickets cost $10. This is a digital-only production, so don't turn up at the theatre, with each of the six productions having been filmed already. To get a ticket, go to the TalkingHorseProductions.org website and click on the Tickets tab. When you buy a ticket, you will get a link to view the production on a private YouTube channel, and that link will be good for one month, so you can watch whenever you want and as many times as you want but and here's the important part do take note this is the last day for ticket sales so even if you can't watch tonight you'll need to buy your ticket before tonight's show and of course all ticket sales support Talking Horse Productions so be sure to go there before 7.30 tonight talkinghorseproductions.org and grab yourself a ticket or two Monica Palmer and Mel Richardson thank you so much for the chat thank you thank you Next stop, books. But before we sit down with Skylark bookshop owner, Alex George, I have a word for you. Did you get that? Okay, one more time. It'll all become clear pretty soon. Let's head inside. I know I have said this many, many times over the past few months, but can I get a round of applause for the brilliant arts leaders we have in Colombia who are so creative and inventive and have been so incredibly adept at adapting to the circumstances of 2020 and finding ways to keep us engaged and smiling. And in this next chapter of the show, I am doffing my many hats to Skylark Bookshop, its team and its owner, Alex George, not only for the myriad literary joys they have scattered through the year, but also now a wonderful abundance of holiday ideas that are, well, quite frankly, brilliant. Good morning, Alex George, author, lawyer and independent bookstore icon. <laughs> Hi, Diana. How are you? I don't think I've ever been called an icon before, <laughs> but, but thank you. Well, let's start with one word that I have been practicing how to say. <clears throat> You're book of Lord. Oh, that was good. Thank you. Now, what is it and why is it a national tradition in Iceland? Take it away, Alex. So it's it's a wonderful thing. I'm not going to even try and pronounce it because I'm never going to better that that uh, <laughs> almost uncannily accurate uh, <laughs> rendition. So it's a wonderful tradition that takes place every Christmas Eve in Iceland and uh, every person in the family receives a book. And I guess it's a way of whiling away the time until the following morning but people curl up on the on their sofas and in their rooms and, and they read the book and it's the night before christmas and we read about this it's something that comes up quite often and people sort of talk about it, isn't this great oh we should do this here and we thought well we really should do this here and so it's one of the things that we are offering uh, our customers this year is basically a personalized service whereby we will choose and gift wrap books for every member of the family so that everybody gets to open a, a bookish gift the day before Christmas. Um, and that will be something that they can read perhaps late into the night while they wait for Santa to appear. But it's a wonderful tradition. It's actually one that we had in my family for many years, although we are not Icelandic. <laughs> uh, but I had two sisters who had a habit of waking up at three o'clock in the morning and opening their stockings. And so my parents sort of did a bargain with them and said, right, we'll give you a book instead. You can just open the book. <laughs> <laughs> so not quite as, as, as a nice sort of heartwarming tradition as the, as the Icelandic one, but still works though. So uh, we should say that Yola Book of Lord means Yola is the same as our Yule, so Christmas, Buka, 
book, obviously, and flood means flood. So it's a Christmas book flood is what the Yola Book yes. of Flood actually means. Do you have any information on the on the background of that tradition? I don't. Uh, I'm sure there is a there is a rich uh, rich a rich one, but uh, it's not one that um, we. As I say, we 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 hear about it every year, and we finally decided that perhaps 2020 was the year to uh, to make our our musings a reality. We spent a lot of time in the shop going, "Oh, you know what we should do? We should do this," or we thought about doing that, <laughs> and we just thought, "Well, if ever there was a year for trying stuff out." <laughs> <laughs> it's probably 2020. Well, I did find something online. Apparently, the tradition started during the Second World War, or maybe shortly after the Second World War, when there were currency restrictions on the amount of imported giftware into Iceland. And so they had to try and, and be creative. And one of the things there was more leniency on was imported paper. And so that became, books became the present of choice because they had more access to paper than to other gifts. And it became a tradition thereafter. So I thought that was kind of cute. It doesn't go back, you know, thousands of years back to, you know, Viking marauders. It just goes back to the Second World War. I love the idea of a, of a Viking in, a, in his hat just like, <laughs> reading a novel <laughs> I was made to read the Icelandic sagas as part of my degree I didn't really care for them but I feel like I should go back and and reread them now that maybe I would have more appreciation for them maybe I should read one on Christmas Eve maybe that's the day to go. read books about Icelandic marauding Vikings <laughs> <laughs> So apparently Iceland publishes more books per capita than any other country in the world and ranks number three of the most literate countries. Finland and Norway get the top two spots. United States is number seven on that list, which is actually much better than our home country, Alex, which ranks 17th, one behind oh, Australia. No. <clears throat> yeah. But I feel like I have read many more books than usual this year, partly because COVID and partly because of Skylark who I feel have done such a stellar job, your team have, of making so many books sound alluring, you know, plus extra time. So I wonder how much is book selling about marketing and how much is it about getting us to create new habits or change our habits? Oh, what an interesting question. I mean, I guess there is a, you, you could say it's about marketing, but but for me, I don't know, I'm going to take a slightly more idealistic point of view and say it's really about passion. Um, you know, when we interview people to work for us, we ask them to talk about books that they've read recently that they love. And what I'm really looking for isn't sort of snappy aphorisms or nice turns of phrase. I'm looking for people who are really passionate about the book. And I think that if you can convey that, convey the the enjoyment and the, and whatever else you feel when you read a book to somebody who you've just met, that's the important thing. And I think that's what we as, a, as booksellers everywhere are able to do that certain other establishments whom we won't name cannot because um, Kerry Kupke's brain I always say is better than any algorithm ever invented and you know, the ability to talk to somebody, see what they have read in the past and then go, well, you might try this or you might try that. So it's really for me is about being able to convey the joy that, that we all derive from books. And hopefully if we do that right, then, you know, we're, we're going to sell more books. And many, many times people have come into the shop thinking, well, I'll just get one. Um, and then... <laughs> 
<laughs> Guilty. And then, uh-huh, uh, and then they, they walk out with an armful. And I'm not going to pretend that <laughs> that is not a good feeling from our end. It, it, it's, it's wonderful. And, and, and I can get a little carried away at times and just keep pressing books on people and say, Oh, Oh, yes. And you must read this one as well. And so, so I think it, it's more about that. And, and it sort of by doing that though, you do change people's habits. But I think that having an environment, a physical environment where you can go in and have those conversations is um, is critical in order to change those reading habits. And people now come into the shop expecting a conversation. They they expect recommendations. And so hopefully everybody is happy at the end of it. Well, that does lead me on to a- another thing that I found on your website. I guess I hadn't been to a website for a couple of months. And so there's all these fun new things on there about the holiday season and, and, and Yola Book of Flood and Holiday Helper and all those kind of things. But I hadn't read about your Skylark Reading Spa. So I told my husband, Tom, I thought it was brilliant. And he laughed out loud. But then that's probably because Spa and Tom are not natural bedfellows. You never hear Tom and Spa in the same <laughs> sentence. So I love, love, love the idea of the Skylark Reading Spa. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about that. So we, we, we love this idea too, and it's one of the most fun things that we do. And it does make an amazing holiday gift or birthday gift or any kind of gift, either for yourself or for somebody else. And what it is really basically is um, it's a combination of completely guilt-free shopping, <laughs> and uh, which is always good, and also the benefit of the staff's expertise. So basically what happens is that if you're the recipient of this spa, you get to go in and you have an hour or so with a bookseller who will give you sort of bespoke book recommendations based upon what you like and what you don't like. Uh, We give you a mug, we give you some chocolates, you get to sit upstairs in glorious isolation right now um, and go through the books that we suggest for you and then you can pick as many as you want. There's a $100 limit, um, but people, of course, are more than welcome to go over that. But that's how much comes with it. So you have that amount of money to spend on any book you like or any combination of books. So it's tremendous fun. And we we sort of fight over who gets to do them sometimes <laughs> because it just, it's, it's a conversation. And, and it is, I say, it's a, it's a wonderful, a wonderful gift. Your holiday helper is where you help people well, you kind of choose books for people's friends and family and people in their household. So I guess I would come in and say, okay, I want to buy four books for my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, my husband, my sister-in-law. And, and then you choose the books. How do you know what books to choose? So this is like a mini subscription service because the subscription service is something else that we do where you can give your, again, either for yourself or for somebody else, a three or six or 12 month subscription of either hardbacks or uh, paperbacks. And we choose those books and we gift wrap them and we send them off every month. And that's the wonderful gift that sort of keeps on giving. And what we were trying to do for Christmas was to do a mini version of that. Now with the subscription, we send the recipient a questionnaire because the same yeah there's always the question it's a good question so how do you know what to choose and so we we send them a questionnaire and so we we ask them to list what genres they're interested in if there are any they really don't want to get and then we ask about books that they've enjoyed and authors there and they enjoy and books they didn't like and so that's how we sort of work up our list of titles now that would be too onerous a thing to do just on a one-off so we have a much reduced questionnaire 
that we ask people to fill out. So I think there are like three or four questions on it, and then we go ahead and choose. So we're not doing it in the dark. You know, we do we we do get information first. Okay, not as brilliant as I thought. I thought, wow, you're like mind reading now as well, adding to your many hats <laughs> that you wear. <laughs> no, the mind reading takes a little longer. We're we're, we're still working on that. <laughs> Okay, so let's get on to some books that are coming out in the run-up to the holidays that uh, you're excited about. Give us a handful of books that you're excited about. So the main book, uh, rather obviously perhaps, came out this Tuesday, and it's by a guy who you may have heard of. He's, he's <laughs> fairly, fairly well known. His name is Barack Obama, and it's the first volume of his presidential memoir. And it is going, it is on course already to break absolutely every record imaginable. Um, I wouldn't want to be at the Obama's table at Thanksgiving because I dare say that he will have outsold Michelle Obama by <laughs> and her book did incredibly well two years ago. I have not read it. Um, I've actually downloaded it as an, an audio book through Libro FM because I kind of, which I also did with Michelle Obama's book because Obama narrates it and I'm looking forward to listen, listen, cause he's such a wonderful orator. So I'm looking forward to listening to him actually tell his own story. But that book has been already huge. We had enormous number of pre-orders for that. And fun fact, which I only discovered yesterday, um, Obviously, the book is available everywhere, but the books that you, if you buy that book in an independent bookstore like Skylark, interestingly, although the price is the same as what you would pay in Barnes & Noble or that other place online, the paper is actually better. <laughs> it, and I I know that sounds insane, but but I, Kerry told me this, the books that go to Barnes & Noble, the, the paper is lighter and not as nice as the paper that the independent bookstores have. And just to give you an, an illustration of that, the boxes, it's a huge book. Um, and the boxes that the independent bookstores get, they can get six books into a carton, um, but they can get eight books into a carton uh, for, it's true, uh, for, for, for the, the, the big retailers. So if you want that high quality product, everyone, <laughs> you need to go to an independent bookstore. Weird oh. but true. I, you know, it's it's crazy. So anyway, that's going to be a huge, huge book. I think people are buying it for themselves. Um, they're buying it for gifts. We have certainly had, certainly one one customer bought five, um, five copies, and so I think that that's going to be enormous. And I, I haven't read it. I've read wonderful reviews. I'm sure it's going to be great, uh, and I can't wait to can't wait to get to it. So that's a, um, that's an obvious one. Another book that has just come out, uh, is, uh, by David Sedaris and it's called Best of Me. And it's a, it's a sort of greatest hits, if you like. And I don't know whether you've ever seen him. He was here. He was at the Missouri Theater a few years ago and he was absolutely hilarious. And I actually, oh, I always listened to, to David Sedaris books because I love the way that he speaks and the way that he he sort of performs these pieces. He's just hysterical. And this is um he's pulling from all of previous books. And I think there's some new material in there as well. Again, it's a great gift and you can dip in and out. Uh and it's it's just very, very funny indeed. So that's another one that we're we are very excited about. Okay. One more. Oh one more. So so uh then this is this is a great uh gift as well. It's a cookbook called Flavor by Otto Lenghi. And, um, it's just a, I mean, this is like his seventh cookbook now, but they're all beautiful. They're all wonderful. 
Um, I'm actually going to be later on today, in fact, making a spicy mushroom lasagna mm. from this book. And uh, my mouth is already watering a little bit. <laughs> I've got all of his books. They're all wonderful. And these days, cookbooks are so gorgeously produced that they, again, there are lots of beautiful photos and they make wonderful, wonderful gifts. So though I always worry slightly you're on perilous ground when you give someone a cookbook because are you saying well you know you could really up your game here <laughs> you could do you could do better uh, but but so that's an, that's another one that, that we're excited about fantastic well those are three books and i'm sure there are lots more and if we come down and join the book spa or we uh, want to buy books for our yoda book of lord gifts then you will <laughs> you and carrie and the team will, will be there to advise us Alex, you always do so many amazing things, you and Carrie and everybody down there. And it's exciting always to go to your website and see what's coming up because there's always something new happening. So thank you very much for keeping me personally very engaged this year with with the book world. Thanks, Diana. Last stop today is with the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, but not in our usual hangout of the Missouri Theatre and not with musicians. Each holiday season for the past 36 years, the Missouri Symphony League has persuaded a handful of local couples to open up their holiday-bedecked homes and allow the public to tour through them in exchange for a donation to the league. And every year when I see the promotion start for this event, I think about how much my mum would have absolutely loved to be on these tours, mostly because she was a self-confessed nosy parker and what lay behind other people's doors was always a massive intrigue for her. So here to dish the intrigue on this year's Missouri Symphony League's holiday home tour is Missouri Symphony Orchestra Executive Director Trent Rash and board member Julie Middleton. Hello, Julie and Trent. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, you are welcome. So like every other arts-based event for the past eight months, this year's holiday home tour is a little different than previous years as there is no in-person tour, but rather a virtual tour of three homes. So Julie, tell us about the three homes that will be featured this year. Well, this year, we are really excited to have the theme, Sports Supports the Arts. And so we've chosen three sports enthusiasts and icons in our community to open up their homes. So this year, we have Norm Stewart, Gary Pinkle, and Atia Ellison. All three of them are opening up their homes for the tour, and we're just so excited about that. And sports is an unusual bedfellow with the arts. I would say from an arts perspective, it seems like the crossover part of the sports and arts Venn diagram is pretty sparsely populated, especially when it comes to funding. What is the background to the sports focus for this year's tour, Julie? Well, this year, since we don't have the ability to go in person, we just thought we would identify people who are very well known in the community. And of course, everyone, certainly in Columbia and throughout the state, love the sports. And so we thought, what a wonderful marriage to put together sports and the arts. And we thought that that would have very wide appeal across the city and across the state and even beyond. So we're excited about having that kind of theme this year. So do you think that more people will attend who maybe wouldn't ordinarily support the arts because there is a sports focus this year? 
I think so. I think people are hungry for sports. You know, we're not able to go to the games as we have been in the past with COVID-19. And I think they're just really going to be excited to get inside those homes of people that they've heard about for many years, but they really have not had an opportunity to really get too close to them. And so we think that not only would we have appeal in Colombia, and usually we have about 800 people going through our homes, but now we'll be able to advertise maybe through Kansas City and St. Louis and beyond, and that uh, people will want to tune in virtually. So I really believe we're going to have more people attend than we have had in the past. Yeah, I guess it's like arts events that go online. You have a global audience rather than a local audience once that people can tune in online. I'm always amazed at the amount of work that goes into prepping the homes for the in-person tours. Julie, what kind of help does the league provide to the homeowners to get their place all spick and span and ready? Well, that is a process, and it actually (laughs) depends upon the individuals. And uh, in some cases, they will want to write some descriptions of the things that they have in their homes. They will want to identify certain artifacts that they have. I know that Norm Stewart has um, a big room with... um, a lot of sports memorabilia. And so he's going to show that room and people are going to be interested in that. And so he's writing down and Virginia, along with him, they're going through the home and determining what things might have interest to the public. And we're doing the same thing with Gary and Missy and the same thing with Jessica and Atia Ellison. And so they're writing these descriptions and um, we will also go over and have a walkthrough with them. We're working very closely with um, VisionWorks Marketing Group. They are going to be doing all of the filming. And we're letting the homeowners tell us, are we going to film inside? Are we also filming outside? And I do know that Atia and Jessica are going to have some beautiful outdoor lights. And so we're going to film the outdoor of their house as well as indoors. We also let them decide if they want to involve the family. And in the case of the Ellisons, they have four children. And so we said, sure, I think everybody would be delighted to meet your children. And so the children will be there and uh, they will all participate in the filming. So we just kind of work with each individual family and we find out what their needs are and what it is they want to focus upon. Because we're not necessarily going from room to room throughout the entire house. We're going into the rooms that they want to share with us that they believe that the... um community would have interest. And so it's actually, not only is it fun for them, but it's also fun for the Symphony League committee to work on this. In some of the cases, they will have a decorator come in. I believe that Kent's a floral organization is going to come in and work with someone. I believe it's the Stewarts. I'm not sure. And then others are going to do their decorations themselves. I recall a few years ago, a friend of mine being involved in the holiday home tour. I mean, it was her home. And I think I think you paid for them to go to a hotel for the weekend. The homeowner has the option of staying. This is when it was in the on the in-person days, or you can 
they can ship out for the weekend. Is that right? <laughs> yes, actually, it's a choice that they have. And I have certainly attended many home tours in the past. And sometimes the owners have been present. But this time, they will be present for the filming. In fact, each family will have an introduction. They're going to welcome everyone to their home. And then they will probably walk alongside Vision Works Marketing Group as they're filming. So they will probably be a little more involved, but um, with the editing process, it, you know, I'm not sure if they'll be there the whole time. Trent, I'm obviously, this isn't just you turning up with your cell phone and VisionWorks marketing. I, this is a pretty professional production. What have been the, some of the logistics for turning this in-person event into a virtual experience? Is it more video or more virtual reality? That's a great question. You know, I, I'm so proud of the league and how they pivoted with us during this time to move online, I would argue that this is a pretty much a production piece because it requires the company that we've hired VisionWorks Marketing to work with each of the homeowners to kind of get together what it's going to look like, what, what rooms they're going to use. I think they've done tours of the homes that they're going to before they film. So it definitely is more has, has a pretty high production value so they can make sure that they're getting all the story pieces and all the uh, touring pieces that they need to get in. Julie, I mean, historically, when it was an in-person event, you would have docents in the house too, kind of in each room talking about, well, I guess in, in specific rooms talking about each room they were in. So, so there aren't as many Symphony League members involved this year. No, there are not as many. Uh, docent, certainly the docents are not involved this year because the homeowner themselves will actually serve almost as though they were the docents because they are the ones that will say, this is my home and these are the things that I'd like to share with you. So we twisted that around a little by not having the docents involved. I remember somebody contacting me one year to see if I'd be interested in having our home on the tour. And I was flattered and kind of horrified at the thought of hundreds of people trampling through our tiny home. Um, and I don't think the person who asked me realized that we were closer to poor than fancy. So in the end, I said, oh, I don't think you, you know how I live. And so it, nothing was pursued. But what is the usual reaction when you ask someone to open up their home, Julie? Do you, do you have to ask many people to get three? We actually do. <laughs> very often we do because, you know, very often people are very private and sometimes they're modest and they just are not sure about opening their home in this way. And I believe that, you know, since we are doing this virtually, it actually took down some of the barriers. And so we actually did not have to ask a lot of people this year because we told them it was going to be virtual. They weren't going to have 800 people <laughs> going through their home. And so I, they agreed uh, more readily this year. So I think that we're really on to something with this virtual tour. Do you think you might keep it virtual going forward or is it really an in-person experience that is the most exciting? Well, you know, that's a really good question. We're going to try this out. Of course, this is the first time we've attempted to do it virtually. So we'll see how it goes. Um, we're really enthusiastic about this. We, it seems as though it's going to be phenomenal. And so we're thinking if it is, if it works very well, we could possibly do it again. 
Trent, can you explain for us the relationship? You have the Missouri Symphony Orchestra and you have the Missouri Symphony League and then also the Conservatory. How do they all tie together? Are they separate organizations under one or is it just one organization with subsections? Yeah, we like to think of ourselves as one mosey, but they are three distinct branches. And so um, you have the the branch of the orchestra and and the branch of the conservatory. And then the league is sort of serves as our fundraising arm. And so everything that they make an income every year is donated directly back to Mosey in a very ceremonious, ceremonious way the next, the following year. And so they, however much they make, they decide we're going to put this toward this and this and this, and they support so many things for both the orchestra and the conservatory. They'll, they'll sponsor chairs for musicians. They will sponsor students in the conservatory. So they're very generous in, in the ways that they give back to the other two branches of the organization. And do you have a sense of what the funds raised will go towards exactly? And obviously, this year is an exceptional year for fundraising for all arts organizations. Where are your needs this year? They definitely are very similar to the same places they have been before. It's wonderful that every year for a number of years, they have raised enough money to sponsor every student who's in the chamber players in the conservatory. And that has meant a lot because all of those players are also in another organization or excuse me, another ensemble within the conservatory. So that takes a bit of the financial burden off of them. So I assume that will be a place we'll still want them to work. The conservatory apprentices, who are the students that play with the professional orchestra in the summer, they've sponsored them. I think that will be another place that would be wonderful to have their support. But we always kind of let them talk amongst themselves and decide what they think is best as well to use with their money. So Julie, their tickets are, are they available on sale already? What is the process for people who want to take the virtual tour? Well, people would just need to go to the MOSI website and um, go and purchase their tickets there. The tickets are $25, and that's for each location. So actually, you could have two or three people or five or six people in your home around your computer if you would like, but the tickets are $25 per home. And um, the good thing about this is that people don't have to watch this just in time. They will be able to, with their ticket purchase, view between December 15th and January 3rd. So anytime they want to view it, they can just turn it on and view within that period of time. Can you watch just once or can you watch multiple times during that time period? Yeah, I think that with that link that they'll receive, I think they could watch it every day during that period. That link will be active until it closes after January 3rd. And that way, if they only have time to watch one home, and then later they can come back and watch another, you know, and divide it up in that way, depending upon the time that they have. How long is each tour? Do you have a sense of, is it half an hour or something? Each tour is going to be about 20 minutes. Of course, we're going to have probably three or four hours of videoing before we whittle that down into about 20 minutes. So it'll be 15 to 20 minutes for each home. Perfect. So tickets for the virtual holiday home tour are available at themosey.org and you can click on the league tab at the top of the page and then follow the link through to tickets. As Julie said, tickets are $25 and you can take the tour anytime between Tuesday, December the 15th and Sunday, January the 3rd. Julie Middleton and Trent Rash, thank you so much for taking time to chat today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Diana. Bye-bye. that is it for another week but there is plenty to keep us all engaged online theater putting together our yolo book of lord book lists 
a new art show at the Columbia Art League, plus a peek behind some famous doors to look forward to in December. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. again to my guests today, Monica Palmer and Mel Richardson from Talking Horse Productions Starting Gate New Play Festival, Alex George from Skylark Bookshop and Julie Middleton and Trent Rash from the Missouri Symphony Orchestra. Thanks also to guitarist Yasmin Williams whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.